When people don't speak standard English, how should reporters quote them? It's a big, diverse world out here. We don't all speak exactly the same, and I think it's okay to let someone speak in the voice that is authentic to them. That's Karen Hawkins, a self-described mouthy black lesbian feminist over 40 and recovering mainstream media reporter and editor who's, in my opinion, doing a terrible job of recovering because she's now one of the most influential people in Chicago media. She's the co-publisher of the Chicago Reader. She's the founder of Rebellious Magazine, an online publication delivering Chicago news through a feminist perspective. And she's one of the leaders of the upstart Chicago Independent Media Alliance. I'm Charlie Myerson with Rivet360 and ChicagoPublicSquare.com, both of them, by the way, members of the Media Alliance. And we're here for Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. We're recording this on Clubhouse before turning it into a podcast. And if you're listening live, we'll be taking your comments and questions. Just tap the raise your hand icon at any time. And here's my co-host, Sheila Solomon, my colleague at Rivet and among so many other valuable roles in Chicago media, a vice chairman at Journalism Funding Partners, a startup nonprofit helping local news organizations serve their communities. Sheila? Karen. We had a great conversation last week about mainstream media. I haven't read Rebellious, and I haven't heard your podcast yet. I'm going to be checking all of that out. But you and I were talking about how dismissive more so-called mainstream media can be about independent and non-for-profit news outlets. Mm -hmm. Is this because of competition or something else? Well, thank you for asking. And first, thank you all for having me on. I am so excited to be on episode two. Uh, So thank you so much. Um, So why do people look down on community and ethnic media and why do they marginalize community and ethnic media? I would say for the same reasons they marginalize marginalized people. You know, I think journalists uh, in particular, journalism in particular, has a lot of gatekeeping associated with it. It has stayed more or less the same demographically over time. And I think There is an elitism in the industry that we are all very aware of. You know, we all know what the big papers are, the big prestigious papers are, and we look down on everyone else. And I feel like there is this class system that happens. And I am hoping now that we have a renaissance and we have this pivot point where people are recognizing that the community and ethnic media is vital and is important and is doing amazing work and is vital to communities and is speaking to audiences in a way that mainstream media outlets will never be able to until they change. So I think that's why they do it. And I do hope that it is changing. Frankly, I think that the community newsrooms have already been showing that they're vital. And that's why they have sustained some support. You look at the SEMA campaign. Yeah. Right. And, you know, last I checked, Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, we're at almost $90,000. $90,000 raised from the community. That does not include the 70 or $57,000, at least from foundations supporting SEMA. And I, I do think, I, I guess I'm agreeing that we, that, yeah. that folks are recognizing the work that the community and ethnic media is doing and valuing it and putting their money where their mouth is when they say that they support it. And that is really gratifying to see. And I don't know that mainstream media will ever recognize us the way that our community and foundations do. But but for right now, that support has been 
really heartwarming to see. So back to Rebellious. Why did you create it? So I love this story. So um, I (laughs) created Rebellious as I was leaving my reporting job with a media outlet whose name I will not say, but whose initials are AP. Uh, I was very dissatisfied with a lot of things. I loved working at the Associated Press. I absolutely adored it. It really was a dream job. It just felt like this absolutely unreal experience. And I eventually, though, got to a place where I realized it was not the kind of journalism that I wanted to be doing, and it was not how I wanted to be treated at work. And so I created my own media outlet that did tell the stories that I wanted to tell in the way that I wanted to tell them and where I was the boss and I could treat myself however I wanted. Um, So that's kind of the short answer of why I started Rebellious. But, you know, March of 2012 was such a different time, obviously, for so many reasons, but really particularly for feminism at the time. It was really not a word that we bandied about in the same way that we do now, both as Rebellious and as a culture. So it has been so fun to watch the culture change in the last almost 10 years and um, to watch independent media kind of come into its own. When you say you weren't treated the way you wanted to be treated in your, in your job at the Associated Press, tell us more about that. Well, the example I usually give is that the name rebellious comes from my boss. I was working nights and weekends as you do. I worked there for six and a half years. I was working nights and weekends. I had worked the overnight shift. I asked for four Saturdays off in a row, and I asked in December for those four Saturdays in July, and when my boss got to making the schedule in July, he was very annoyed that I had asked for this time off because he was going to have to put other people in. It was going to throw off the rotation, and he told me that I was being rebellious and that I was testing him by asking for this time off. And uh, That you had asked for it six months earlier. Correct. Six months earlier to ensure that I got it because as, you know, as a, not even a relatively new person, but I knew that it was going to be difficult. And yeah, I asked for it six months in advance and, you know, he waited to make the schedule. That's his right. But he is very mad (laughs) that I I had asked for these four Saturdays off in a row. And it just like to him, to me, the word rebellious, you know, we have slave rebellions, right? Like people rebel and they overthrow governments. I asked for my time off. So you decided to be the boss. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Good call. Well, and now you're an even bigger boss. You know, as co-publisher of The Reader with Tracy Bame, um, you hold what I consider one of the most influential jobs in all of Chicago media. Walk us through how you got there. Yes, well, and thank you for saying that. I I, um, I hope my staff hears this and hears that I'm influential. <laughs> you are. You are. I'll write, I'll give you a note if you need one. Thank you very much, dear reader staff. Um, So I first worked with my co-publisher, Tracy Bame, 21 years ago at the Windy City Times. I was an editor and a reporter. And And we should explain, I mean, not everybody knows, Windy City Times is a publication that for decades has... Covered the LGBTQ plus community in Chicago for 36 years. So you were back there with Tracy... I was. um, And in 2000, I was an editor under the old Windy City Times regime. Tracy was one of the co-founders. Then she left, then was presented the opportunity in 2000 to buy the paper back. And she did. And I went to work for her. I was there almost a year and a half total, I would say, as an editor and and reporter. 
Um, and then I left, but she and I kept in touch. We stayed friends. She became one of my most valued sources at the AP when I was covering the LGBTQ community. Um, and into 2018, when she was hired as the publisher of The Reader, she came to me and asked me to apply and I did not get the job that I applied for. Um, I, I created a job for myself. I said, what you really need is a digital managing editor and they didn't have one and didn't plan to have one, but talked myself into it somehow. Uh, Sujay Kumar was hired as the managing editor for Prince. He and I worked side by side under an editor in chief who then left. And he and I sweet talked Tracy uh, into allowing us to try this co-editor-in-chief thing. I think what we said was the New York Times Review of Books is doing, they have co-editors. It's the, it's the brand new thing in journalism. You should let us try it. And she did. Uh, and so we were co-editor-in-chief together for over a year. And then I've been co-publisher with Tracy uh, since about November. Karen, I remember when some of that was going on because I was doing research then for Democracy Fund. I remember seeing you at some job fair and knew that you were about to make this move. And you told me about Rebellious and some other things that were going on. And then, of course, I knew Tracy. And, and you have a lot going on. So you have Rebellious, you have the reader, and you have your podcast. How, how are you balancing all of those jobs? Ah, sometimes more gracefully than others. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I really, you know, both fortunately and unfortunately, the podcasts are not revenue generators. I'm not making any money from my podcasts. They Tell are, us about it. Yeah, Tell us yeah, about yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> it may surprise you all to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And so those are just creative projects that fuel me, that I love, that I do because I love it, because I love learning this new thing and that I, I love having something in the universe of what I do that I don't have to constantly be worried about money. Like as co-publisher of The Reader and founder of a startup, I'm always thinking about money and I get on those podcasts and I just kind of like get to hang out. And so th that that's how I juggle that. Like those are creative things that I do just for the love and the reader and rebellious, I think I have gotten to a point where I can just switch off the different parts of my brain. And um, again, I do rebellious for the love. That doesn't pay me anything either. So um, I think it's really important to have hobbies that fuel you. And those, those right now I consider hobbies, even though rebellious is its own thing. In a typical Tell week, us. when do you sleep? Oh, <laughs> I get a ton of sleep. Believe it or not, I'm a big fan of sleep. Did you tell us the name of the podcast? Oh, yes. So I have two podcasts. The active one right now is, of course, I'm not okay. And it was with my friend Katie Morrell. And we talk about creativity and mental health and coping with quarantine. We were founded last July. And so it was really about quarantine. And now as we move out of it, it's about that. And then the other one is on hiatus right now that we have two episodes that just posted. It is called Feminist Erotica. It is with my dear friend, Princess McDowell. And we interview authors in the erotica space and um, have different conversations about themes in the space. It's just, it's a, an extension of the sexual health and reproductive justice work that Rebellious does. Sheila and I have been wrestling with an editorial puzzle and we're gonna put it to Karen Hawkins after this. Chicago Media Talks is sponsored by Sun Fun You Mediterranean Voyages, 
When you need a break from all the news and from the windy city itself, join Sun Fun Yu for a week yachting through the Mediterranean, learning history of the region, and playing in the sea. To make trouble seem a world away, visit Sun Fun Yu and sign up for a voyage this summer. Karen, Sheila and I have been discussing this in the last few days. Uh, the question of how to quote people who, by reason of education or having learned English as a second language, don't speak in standard English. So what do you think, as, as an editor and publisher, when should a reporter, when should a publication clean up a quote? And, and when does that do a speaker a disservice? Ooh, so my answer is a reader staffer is going to be very different than it would have been, I suspect, as an Associated Press staffer. I think we should let people talk the way they talk. We're all used to hearing people's accents, hearing the way people phrase things, hearing, having that land on your ear. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking readers to interpret that in print as well, or whatever medium you're working in. Like we're, it's a big diverse world out here. We don't all speak exactly the same. And I think it's okay to let someone speak in the voice that is authentic to them. And that's exactly what young journalists are saying and doing at their publication. Some of them are making that push in the so-called legacy mainstream newsrooms, and others of them are making certain that the uh, platforms they're building are allowing readers to do just that. I mean, I think it's part of also the push, you know, the reader stopped italicizing quote unquote foreign words because of the chatter around the origins of that practice. And this notion that this, you know, English speaking, straight, white, male gaze is the gaze that we all should be looking at the world through. And if it's different than that, then we have to, you know, set it off somehow. I think it is part of a larger conversation about allowing people to speak and to identify themselves in the way that it's authentic to them, not the way that your style guide tells you to. Can you give us some examples? I mean, the italicization question is, is an interesting one. Sure. So I, I have the privilege of editing Mike Sula, who is a senior food writer for The Reader. And, you know, that is the place where I would see it the most is um, if there was a non-English word for a dish, then we would set it off in italics. And we don't do that anymore. Makes the composition easier. A couple <laughs> of fewer keystrokes. I'll say that. Certainly, yes. So, Karen, I was on the phone recently with a publisher who wants to join the Chicago Independent Media Alliance. Who can be a member and how does the organization benefit members and media consumers? I am so glad you asked. We are a big tent. Um, I think there are very, I don't know that we have ever turned anyone away. You can reach out to Yasmin Dominguez at the Chicago Reader for information about how to join. And I think really you just have to be in Chicago and be independent. Those are really the only rules. And um, as Charlie knows, we don't have meetings. I mean, we have meetings, but we don't have dues. You can opt in or opt out of anything you want. Um, The benefits I feel like are very tangible in that our biggest projects so far as an organization have been the joint fundraisers, both in 2020 and this year. And last year we raised $160,000 like we're on track to raise that again and it's free money like i said you can opt in or opt out of the fundraiser our team at the reader does all of the graphic design and all of the assets 
um, in terms of ads and social media. Yasmin is a powerhouse and does all of the legwork. I mean, the outlets are asked to promote it and to ask, engage with their audiences around it, but um, it's really a low lift for something that can be really transformative Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and anyone who's familiar with the, the fable of, of a stone soup where the guy comes into town and he's got no food and he, and, and he persuades everyone in the village to just pitch in a little bit, a few potatoes, a few carrots, and all of a sudden there is soup for everybody from a guy who didn't have anything except some stones in his pocket. Um, it's, it's very much like that. And, and basically anyone who wants to be in the alliance uh, is asked really just to bring his, her, or their audience uh, to the table to, you know, to, to get messages from the, the Alliance and in particular learn about fundraising and things like this. Um, I, I, something that, that interests me is what the Alliance has been doing, uh, Karen, to try to persuade uh, government agencies to spend more of their advertising budgets with, with independent media. Can you update us on that? Yes, I love this project. So we were inspired by uh, City University of New York, which worked with their Center for Community Media um, on what ended up being an executive order by Mayor de Blasio requiring all city agencies to spend 50% of their marketing dollars in community and ethnic media. And this was a very long effort. And they did a lot of work to figure out, you know, how much, well, how much are they spending and what percentage of it is going to community ethnic media. And the answer for New York was, I believe it was 80% of the marketing dollars for the city were going to five outlets in New York. And they have hundreds of <laughs> media outlets, right? So we are one of their partners regionally, one of CUNY's partners regionally. And so inspired by that, we brought on um, a FOIA reporter to FOIA all of the city, I think all city, county and state agencies that spend marketing dollars just to see, like get a baseline for where they are. And that's kind of where we are right now is looking over that report. New York was easier because they, their, their marketing spending is centralized. As you can imagine, ours is not. <laughs> we have agencies <laughs> involved and the spreadsheets are all different and the money comes out of some budgets for some agencies and other budgets. You know, it's a little bit of a mess, but um, hats off to Sam Strucklow who did this work for us for generating this report um, that, is in its preliminary phase right now, but has been very illuminating about how government spends its marketing dollars and claims that they want to reach all Chicagoans, but is spending a lot of money with outlets that we all know are not reaching all Chicagoans. And, you know, I would add to that, that just as the mayor, what, a few weeks ago, brought up the fact that there were, was not enough diversity in the press room. Mm -hmm we have seen the same conversation or heard the same conversation between the press representing communities of color and the city when it comes to getting advertising dollars uh, of any kind in the publications. And I know that that is making a difference because the Crusader is now one of, just to name one, of our public community publications is beginning to get dollars from City Hall after 50 yeah. some years. So Karen, how are we how are we doing in 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 the fundraiser for the Chicago Independent Media Alliance at this point compared to last year? Ooh, uh, that is such a good question. 
I wish I knew the answer to that. I, you know, last year we extended a weekend and got up to a hundred thousand. This year we extended a weekend and are at 90 for the, we're at 89 this morning, but of course we have all of today to fundraise. So we might actually be in roughly the same place. I think this year was definitely more of a nail biter in the sense that <laughs> we came into this last eight day stretch. Very, I will just say very, very, very short of $89,000. We've raised a lot of money in the last eight days. And it's a different it, it climate. I mean, this year, last year at this time, you know, we were entering the thick of the pandemic. Has, has that been a big factor, do you think? We suspect it has been a big factor that last year felt like such an emergency. Like, oh, my God, you lost 90 percent of your advertising revenue immediately. I know what that's like. I'm watching that happen in all, you know, all of the businesses around me in my own life. I'm going to help you out. And I think, yes, a year in that sense of urgency has dissipated. But I think what has replaced it is people's passion for community and ethnic news and realizing how many of these outlets really got them through the last year. Karen, uh, the reader has recently gone uh, to a nonprofit model, um, unlike many legacy media in Chicago. Um, how is that working, and and is it the future? And and I understand Rebellious has a similar kind of uh, status. How's how's that working for both publications? I'm so glad you asked because it's great. <laughs> so you know, um, <laughs> you know, obviously, both for the reader and for Rebellious. The decisions to go nonprofit were in a large, in large part, financial. Being nonprofit offers you, yes, the opportunity to have donations be tax deductible. Uh, you can get grants in a different way. Uh, it's just a different, it's just a, a different financial model. What the reader is learning is that it's also a different mindset. That being nonprofit isn't just about how you get money. It's also about how you operate. It's about how you engage with your community. It's about how you um, move through the world that is different than a for-profit entity. So the reader is really learning that. Rebellious, what uh, we are not a 501c3 nonprofit. We are a state nonprofit. So our nonprofit entity for the reader is the Reader Institute for Community Journalism. The nonprofit for Rebellious is the Feminist Media Foundation. Donations to both are tax deductible. For Rebellious, you just have to go through our fiscal sponsor. But it's really, it's been wonderful to move into a space where we call ourselves community journalism. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to actually be community supported and to, like I said, engage with your community in a different way? Nonprofits engage with their donors and their who they provide services to, quote unquote, in a much different way than for-profits and the way that newspapers traditionally do. And so moving into that space has been really exciting. There's something else that you all have been doing too, at least before COVID, there were actual events and collaborations, which is also engagement in ways that some other members of the media have not been practicing. Oh, it's so true. And, you know, oh God, it's been so long. I forgot all about them. But yes, both the Reader and Rebellious, yes, both used to hold events. Um, I think one of the, I believe the last event that the Reader did was an election, a primary election show uh, with Maya Dubmasova and Ben Jarofsky, a promontory. And it was so fun. You know, I love these events because the whole staff will come out and we'll hang mm -hmm. out. And, yep. you know, it's great to mix it up with them. And um, yeah, we're hoping to get back there again eventually. Final thoughts, Sheila. This has been an exciting conversation because this, this space, this fiscal sponsorship space 
that Karen was talking to, um, talking about rather, is a lot of what I'm now doing. And it's very exciting to, to know that there are many more vehicles out here to help support organizations such as yours, Charlie, Karen's, and others that people don't know about. Final thoughts, Karen. That the free press is not free. If you read things every day, if you listen every day, if you watch every day and don't pay anything, you should know that other people are kind of carrying the bag for you. And that if you value journalism, you value storytelling, you value media that speaks to you directly, that we are in a space where we need to support it in ways that we aren't used to, that nothing is free anymore. And that if you want these things to survive, you want to keep hearing these voices and keep reading these writers, then it's going to cost you. I'll leave it a little something goes a long way, especially for a small media outlet. You may think like, oh, I'm not going to give you $45. What difference does it make? It can be huge for a small outlet. Our guest on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded live on Clubhouse, June 14th, 2021, has been Karen Hawkins, the co-publisher of the Chicago Reader and the founder of Rebellious Magazine for Women. You can reach Karen on Twitter at Chief Rebel, that's R-E-B-E-L-L-E. You can find Sheila Solomon at Sheila at Rivet360.com. And I'm Charlie Myerson. Join me for a roundup of the news around 10 weekday mornings at ChicagoPublicSquare.com. And be here again Mondays at 2 for more Chicago Media Talks. For Sheila Solomon, producer Jennifer O'Neill, and everyone at Rivet360, thanks for listening. Rivet360 makes podcasting easy. Want help with your podcast? Visit rivet360.com.